Hello and welcome to the September 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Brad Snyder, the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And what we're not going to talk about today, what are we not going to talk about today, Arthur Leonard? We're not going to talk about the New York City primaries. <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about them, uh, which have taken place which have as taken of this, place, right? as of two days ago. Uh, we, we're not going to talk about it, though. We're not going to talk about it. Because it has nothing to do with lesbian gay law notes. Right. Um, Although it will be in, right? We'll, we'll, we'll mention it. In the October oh, issue, it will probably be Given in. the fact that there was a, a lesbian candidate for mayor who, who lost badly in the primaries, is that not going to show up in the lesbian gay law notes? To me, the, the significant First issue... First out lesbian speaker the, the city council. The significant issue for lesbian gay law notes is who was elected, which is uh, that the gay caucus of the city council is going to expand. Yeah, including the, the first, first openly gay legislator Brooklyn in the Bronx, which Brooklyn is historic. Two, and from, two from Queens, two from Manhattan. So, uh, so it's the largest gay well, caucus six, in the city council. Yeah, well, that's right. openly gay members, assuming that all the Democratic nominees get elected. But since in some of those districts there There's are no, no opposition... Okay. It'll happen. But that's political, and we're here to talk legal. And yes. I guess that the thing to note is that the September issue of Lesbian Gay Law Notes was 75 pages long, which set a new record for us, because the legal developments uh, in, in late July and August were just stunning. It was over and over again. Almost every day there was something new. And so this podcast is going to be necessarily very selective. We're just going to focus in on a handful of major legal decisions. And, and before we go further, you uh, are, are part of an experiment this morning, which you didn't know you signed up for, which is normally a fair request on your part. Is, our listeners may or may not know this is you like to have maybe some idea of some, generally speaking, some of the cases, or certainly the cases we're focused on, some of the questions, because, you know, you need to do a little homework to prepare. Right. Um, and today we're going to try an experiment where, you know, I didn't send you any of that. Well, you, you did tell me which cases, but you didn't send me the questions you were going to ask or, uh, you know, any of the detail, which uh, you have normally in the past prepared at least an outline sort of script. Right. But it's my view that I'm helping you in your role, since you're really, to be sort of one of the fathers of LGBTQ legal scholarship, I should you be should able know to this anyway. I should be able to respond instantaneously. Okay, so we're going to test that right now. This is the beginning of the experiment. We're going to start with a case out of the Ninth Circuit. It's the case of Pickup v. Brown, uh, in which the Ninth Circuit there has rejected a constitutional challenge to the state's ban on so-called sexual orientation conversion therapy. Now, this is very much in the news, Art. This, the, uh, New Jersey has also picked up uh, with this, where New Jersey started in terms of banning this practice, at least with respect in California, was to, with respect to minors under the age of 18, that the use of these conversion therapy type techniques by licensed therapists or anyone else, I guess, um, no, not, not anyone else, only only licensed therapists would, would be prohibited under the uh, under the state's law. Can you give us a little sense of uh, the, the background on some of these laws and where why we're seeing some of this now in terms of movement by legislatures uh, and states to, to, to ban the practice? Well, this, is, this has been on the agenda of the LGBT rights movement for a long time. Uh, the, the history of this is that uh, back in the early portion of the 20th century, at a time when the general consensus of the medical profession was that homosexuality was a mental illness and that it could be cured through psychotherapy, through psychiatric treatments, all kinds of things were tried, shock therapy, uh, lobotomies, there were really extreme uh, measures, and 
of course, more uh, more standard uh, talk-oriented psychotherapy. And uh, eventually, based on new understanding, new scientific uh, discoveries of the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the medical profession as a whole tended to reject this approach. Uh, in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association voted to remove homosexuality from the list of mental disorders, which it publishes, the DSM, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And uh, the idea that uh, therapists could change someone's sexual orientation came into disrepute, generally speaking, but there, have, there were always holdouts. There was always a minority in the psychology and psychiatric fields who felt that uh, the case hadn't been proven and who continued to offer such therapy. Uh, but meanwhile, there was much anecdotal evidence emerging that such therapy could actually be harmful to some there, There's been, and on that front, there's been, I mean, causal relationships are always difficult to prove, but there's been some high-profile cases involving young young people who've gone through this process who wind up committing suicide or uh, involved in acts of violence or other sort of obvious visible scars, so right. to speak, from the effort. And, and of, of perhaps more direct relevance, there has been no real proof that such therapy actually changes anyone's sexual orientation. It might change the way people behave, but it doesn't change their very deep-seated identity in terms of uh, their sexual orientation. So... Uh, there emerged a consensus among the mainstream of uh, professional organizations in the field of mental health that such treatments were ineffective and potentially dangerous. And therefore, as a matter of regulation of medical practice, they should be restricted in some way. And the, the initial focus has been on minors, on situations where parents, and it's usually parents trying to force their kids to be straight. Uh, and uh, this is the sort of thing that keeps kids from coming out, uh, mm -hmm. but it, it's also the sort of thing that can create quite a bit of misery for kids. So uh, California has, has been at the forefront of LGBT-related leg legislation for the past decade or so. The uh, gay lobbying groups out, out there and the openly gay legislators have been very effective in advancing a broad uh, gay rights agenda in the state legislature. And one of the things they've been working on for several years was the idea prohibiting therapists as a matter of regulation of practice from performing uh, sexual orientation change efforts, or SOCE, S-O-C-E is the way the court refers to it in the case, because that's how it's referred to in the, in the legislation. So the bill, Senate Bill 1172, was passed into law last year, 2012, signed into law by Governor Brown, and then there were two lawsuits filed. Uh, by various practitioners of SOCH. Uh, and uh, they, it, it was odd. They were both filed in the same federal district court holding that uh, the ban violated the First Amendment and the uh, plaintiffs sought injunctive relief. They wanted to keep the uh, bill. And, and on the, the First Amendment point, the argument uh, of these practitioners is that you are inhibiting their First Amendment right. well, they're, speech they're, rights they're by... Essentially saying we can't do this type of, right. of talk uh, therapy with our with our clients. They're claiming that SOCH, as they practice it, is an expressive activity protected by the First Amendment and that the state does not have sufficient justification for prohibiting it. Now, it's, it's important to keep in mind the limitations of the statute. It only applies to people who are licensed practitioners, 
which means that uh, people who do not have licenses to provide counseling and to provide mental health care can do so, like ministers and rabbis can attempt to do. And, and, and there's no reach of, for them for practicing no. essentially a... Uh, a form of therapy without a license? I mean... Well, I suppose uh, that that's a possibility, but it's not discussed by the court, uh, which says that, you know, you can send someone to a, a non-licensed counselor because... And also you could send targets, them out of... You right. can also... The court notes that they're, they're not prevented from, from yeah. sending them out of state. So if the, if the parents want to be really, really great to the kid and not only subject them to this type of therapy, they can also send them out of state yeah, they'll send to, them to, to do it. To, to these conversion camps, which are horror shows. <laughs> it's amazing. But at any rate, uh, the, uh, the legislation that was enacted uh, is a professional regulation. It doesn't provide criminal penalties. It provides uh, professional sanctions. Someone who continues to uh, provide this kind of therapy in violation of the statute could lose their license. And... Uh, loss of a license means that they can't practice in the state. Uh, so it's not imposing criminal penalties. But nonetheless, it, it does raise some First Amendment issues. And uh, two federal district courts issuing decisions within days of each other last December, one of them said they, the, the, the judge thought there was likely a First Amendment violation here and issued an injunction. The other judge said, no, there's no First Amendment issue here and refused to issue an injunction. And the two cases were consolidated for argument in the Ninth Circuit. So, uh, and the injunction that was issued was limited to the plaintiffs in the case. That is, they could not be barred from practicing SOCH, but uh, the injunction didn't uh, broadly apply to uh, stop the statute from going into effect. So the Ninth Circuit was faced with this uh, First Amendment argument, and they rejected it. They said, uh, and it's, it's a long and, and somewhat complicated opinion, uh, but they said that the case law supports the idea that a regulation of medical practice that incidentally affects speech is permissible where legislature acted on the basis of information that a rational legislator could believe, that the legislature here had a report from a special task force from the American Psychological Association. They had resolutions and formal statements on the issue from various other professional associations. They had uh, hearing records, lots of testimony about the impact of SOCH. They were acting on the basis of information, uh, that they had identified a harm, that they had legitimately legislated against that harm. They acted in a targeted, focused way. It isn't sort of a broad scale. Anyone who reads a word about SOCH is going to be sent to prison or something like that. Uh, and so the court felt that it was a reasonable regulation it met the test under the First Amendment. Yet, yet this, as you pointed out earlier, it will still be the case that an adult, and I realize the, 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 the sum of the rationale is a little different and certainly a lot stronger in the case of minors because they don't have the decision, they, they're incapable of making the decision for themselves when they have a parent dragging them to this. But nonetheless, it still leaves untouched the idea of a 19-year-old sort of feeling terrible about their self, uh, perhaps as a, themselves, perhaps as a result of the same sort of family that takes one's kids to conversion therapy, um, and finding the, the nice flyer or the business card or the site online that promises them this great therapy that will help them um, change who they are. And they can still walk, it, walk in the door and get that kind of therapy, despite the fact that the legislature's rationale in major part for for doing this would apply in, in right. many measures to adults right. as well. That it's, I mean, that we have recognized that legislators can decide that a particular medical treatment is ineffective and ban it. 
uh, even without showing that it's harmful. They could ban it as being ineffective. In fact, we, we have this on federal regulations uh, that medications that are found to be ineffective are not going to be licensed by the FDA and they can't be legally sold. So, uh, you know, we, we have pervasive regulation of the healthcare field in this country. And sometimes it trenches on First Amendment rights. and There may be times where it trenches on free exercise of religion rights by practitioners. Uh, but this is a narrowly focused targeted law that was upheld. Uh, New Jersey has uh, subsequently passed a similar uh, bill that was signed into law by Governor Christie, and immediately it was announced by opponents that they would file a lawsuit, which I believe is now on file. There's uh, talk of similar bills uh, being introduced in other states, New York, uh, there's going to be a bill. Uh, Illinois is going to be considering legislation. Uh, no talk of uh, federal legislation at this point. And, and w- should we expect that m- most of these bills will again be focused on on minors? That uh, it, this has been a strategic decision, obviously, to focus on on minors for all sorts of reasons, well, guess, and we're not going to see yeah. one that's just broadly based across. I, I guess there's the theory that adults can consent to submit to such treatment. But in the case of minors, we're talking about parents consenting on behalf of their children. And we're saying that this treatment is questionable enough and possibly damaging enough that parents shouldn't be able to consent on behalf now, of their right, children. Right, but to just go to the analogy just true to the, the harmful or ineffective drugs, right. I mean, we, we would make that unavailable to anyone. I, I think if we had something beyond anecdotal data, if we had really strong scientific evidence of psychological harm, and perhaps even physical harm as a result of social therapy to adults, there would be a strong justification for legislatures to come in and uh, prohibit it as well. Interesting. All right. Anything else you want to note about this case? No, I think uh, given the time we have in the other cases. We did it. All right. So we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're going to be discussing some developments out of the state of New Mexico concerning, first, a wedding photographer's refusal to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony. We're hearing a lot of these. These photographers and other wedding-related Bakers, photographers, florists. <laughs> Who want nothing to do with it. Don't yeah. give me your money. And uh, broader marriage equality news out of, out of New Mexico as well. So stay with us. We are back discussing uh, New Mexico. First, the case of Elaine Photography versus Willick, in which the New Mexico Supreme Court unanimously ruled in, in late August that a wedding photography business violated the New York New excuse me the New Mexico Human Rights Act by refusing service to a lesbian couple for their same sex commitment ceremony. Uh, in the course of this case, the court held that the photography business owner's religious and free speech rights. And there's the argument again, Art. Yeah. This seems like this is the argument these days about First Amendment is a big deal. It's where it is um, that. These rights were not unconstitutionally violated by, by the result. And actually, now I want to pause on that point. This is the argument now. This is no longer, uh, you know, in opposition well, to our rights. It seems like it's no longer just about how depraved and morally bankrupt uh, we are and that sort of thing. It's that we, it, it's our opponents saying we have the religious right to hold on to these convictions. In other words, there's, a, there's an overall trend that we're seeing emerge in gay rights law now. And that is now that we have achieved protection against discrimination by statute, that we've started to achieve constitutional victories, Uh, the argument by our opponents is that their liberties are being violated, their First Amendment right to disagree, their First Amendment right to practice their religious beliefs is being somehow abridged by our right to be treated as equal citizens. And so this is where the clash is now, and it's going to play out for quite a while, I think, and we're going to have some interesting Supreme Court opinions eventually. Yeah, and for, I I guess, just in the course of 
of reading law notes and seeing it seems like these things are really in the air right now. I mean, oh, this yeah. is where well, it's we've at. we've already had the first Supreme Court case on this, which is referred to in here, the uh, Martinez case uh, from the, uh, the law school uh, that refused to extend official recognition to a Christian student group because they excluded gay people from membership. Right. So, you know, and they were claiming First Amendment free exercise rights there. Uh, and the Supreme Court uh, didn't go for their, their argument. Okay, so so, um, so here we are in New Mexico. Let, let me and let's take a step back on the on on the facts because right. I, I love the facts. The facts in this case. are fun. Yeah. yeah, I mean you know fun in a fun if you don't have to live through these facts, but uh, sort of amazing how clear. And, and I realized on on rereading the case uh, yesterday in anticipation of uh, today's taping that in our account of the case we left out one fact that might be sort of interesting. How did Ms. Willock? And, uh, and her partner, uh, Misty Collinsworth, how did they find Elaine Photography in the first place? It had a website. And that's how it goes these days. You know, you, you, you want a wedding photographer, and, uh, you know, maybe you ask friends who had a wedding photographer they like, or maybe you just go online these days, and you find a website. Well, and, and, and we'll get to, the court even says that they could, they could put up something on their website that sort of says, we'll participate in a same-sex wedding, but we don't like it. Well, and we won't participate. We'll photograph. We'll photograph. Okay. So yeah. the, the background is, is as, as Art says, this couple who wants to get married does some online research, finds Elaine Photography, calls them up and starts talking about, hey, you, can you photograph our, our, our wedding? They didn't use the word so wedding. They, they said, said commitment, commitment ceremony. ceremony. Because this was a few years ago. Okay. And, uh, you know, we'll be talking about what's happening in New Mexico now. But uh, at the time, the best you could do in New Mexico was a private commitment ceremony. There was no legal recognition for same-sex couples. So they said, you know, we're going to do a commitment ceremony. Will you photograph it? And uh, Elaine, the co-owner of the business, <laughs> she's like, give me, give me that phone. I hear what's going on yeah. in the background. I can tell you're talking to a same-sex couple. Yeah. Give me that phone. She said, uh, we only do traditional weddings. And uh, so uh, Ms. Willock decides, well, I better confirm what I'm hearing here. She says, you mean you won't do a same-sex ceremony? She said, no, 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 we don't do same-sex ceremonies. So then it doesn't end there, though. So then no. she has her her well, partner and soon-to-be wife, right. hopefully, uh, although her partner, not... Her partner calls. Calls as, you know, as someone presumably, else. Presumably asking for, for the same date. You know, they are available. They could do... A, and and Elaine doesn't start to put two and two together. It right. doesn't sound like... She like, says, oh, yes, we could do it. You know? <laughs> We're available. We're willing. We desperately need the business. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so obviously, they got a different photographer for their ceremony. <laughs> but it turns out Elaine would have been available for this yeah, other ceremony. It would have been right. available. So, so now, almost like a good lawyer or someone, now she has... They have the clear-as-day facts that they say yes to one right. couple ostensibly a no to another, and the only difference is, is that one is same-sex couple and one yeah. is not. And, and so she files with the new, uh, new Mexico Human Rights Commission and says, look, it's a violation of the public accommodations law. And no one disputes in this case. Elaine doesn't dispute that they're a place of public accommodation. They're a business that sells services to the public. They advertise to the public. They have a website. They basically, anyone's wedding, they'll do, just not same-sex ceremonies. Uh, and... Uh, so the uh, the argument they put forward, and it's it's an argument that's frequently made and usually rejected, they said, we're not discriminating based on sexual orientation. We don't care about their sexual orientation. We just do traditional wedding ceremonies. <laughs> I don't even... I'm, I, I said, oh, no. no right, that's and the court gets you know? rid of it, and I don't even understand the argument exactly. Yeah. They say we're... It's not that we have an objection to anyone's sexual orientation. It's that we don't do same-sex 
ceremonies. Ceremonies. Because we don't believe in it. And, it, yeah. and inherent in their argument is the idea that non people who are not gay would participate in same sex. I don't know. Ceremonies? I don't understand well, the distinction. There was a movie about that, right? The two guys who wouldn't <laughs> get married to get benefits in New York. Oh, that's right. That's happening all across the country, as I understand yes, it. Straight, straight people, are, straight are, people are, are lining up to get Marrying their best buds, you know, just to get health insurance. Well, <laughs> okay. So the, somehow it's not sweeping the nation, Brad. <laughs> Although that was one of the arguments, this right? This is your fantasy. Uh, no, but, my fantasy. But, but the way, but the, but the, but the real key is, I mean, there are a lot of issues explored in this opinion. Okay, but the court treats that, sort of yeah. flicks that but, away. But as the, main of a issue, the main issue they make, and it's, it's really very interesting, and there's some plausibility to it. They say, look, we're not just like selling pizza or something. They say, we're selling an expressive activity. When a photographer is involved in a wedding ceremony and they're posing people and they're taking pictures and getting the lighting right and they and the pictures they're taking are communicating a message of some sort, they said that photography is an art form, it's an expressive activity, and expressive activities are protected by the First Amendment, and we shouldn't be required to engage in expressive activity that on its face signals approval of something we don't approve of, that we're being dragooned into forced speech, in mm-hmm. a sense. And uh, it, it violates our personal, moral, and religious beliefs. We don't want to be involved with it. We don't want to be uh, construed by the public as endorsing it. And government can't compel us to endorse it. That's their argument. And the court said, well, well, hold on a minute. You're selling your services. You know, you're not an artist who sits there with a message to communicate and goes out and, you know, takes a, photo- a photograph to communicate your own message. You're being hired. Mm-hmm. You're being hired to document an event. You're selling a service. And when you sell services to the public in New Mexico, you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation of the people to whom you're selling the service and or refusing to sell the service. So they said, you know, it may have an incidental effect on your expressive activity. Once again, as in the prior case with Soch, it has an incidental effect on the freedom of speech of the psychotherapist because the therapy is done through speech. But that's not what we're really regulating. We're regulating a medical practice. And here we're regulating uh, the sale of a service to the public. And it's a service that incorporates an expressive function to it, but it's not the expressive function of the photographer. It's the expression of the customer who wants their ceremony to be documented. And so the court said, you know, maybe it has some slight incidental burden on your freedom of speech, but you are free to speak against same-sex ceremonies. Just like the uh, the practitioner in California of Soch is free to discuss that therapy with their patients, and, and would it's it, free to recommend. And it. wouldn't it, wouldn't I, I, assuming that I, I'll speak for myself? Yes. If I was hiring a wedding photographer, I would consider it useful to know right. if that wedding photographer. So they had should. an opposition to my because so, I would prefer right. not to get crappy pictures back right. from my wedding ceremony. Right. So do you op- want a reluctant <laughs> photographer to document your wedding? Someone who is going to like deliberately? It's like I'm sorry, my thumb is in all the photos. I you know, screw up the lighting or whatever, you know, or get people to have. It. So what I'm getting at it, they can get to the result they want, which right. is non-participation, by well, just making it known that they don't like doing this kind yes, of stuff. Yes, we are. You know, we we do not discriminate. They can put on the website. We do not discriminate. We will uh, photograph any wedding or commitment ceremony were asked to. However, you should know that we're reluctant participants. Exactly. You know, and, and then you would think the amount of calls right. from same-sex couples would dry yeah. up at that point. Or, you know, they would do a few same-sex ceremonies, realize it doesn't hurt so much and the money's good, <laughs> and get better at it. But, uh, and the court, you know, the court mentions this in its opinion. They say, we, we, we can take notice of the fact 
that there are now cases involving bakers who don't want to sell wedding cakes. There are cases of florists who don't want to do the floral arrangements because they have personal objections. But, you know, you go into the public sphere and you provide a service for which you're charging a fee, and the public has a right through its legislative process to have a policy that you can't discriminate. And on this, I think the concurring opinion... Yeah, and we were going to fight over who gets to read it, but I think think you should read it. And this is... This we do take occasions opinion. here, whether they're majority, of, you, know, you know, the main opinion or the concurring opinion, or maybe even sometimes a dissent, to highlight what yeah. is some amazing language from a judge. So go, and, go, and go forth, Arthur Ju- Leonard. Justice Richard C. Boson, especially concurring in the, uh, in the opinion, he says, this case provokes reflection on what this nation is all about. Its promise of fairness, liberty, equality of opportunity, and justice. At its heart, this case teaches that at some point in our lives, all of us must compromise, if only a little, to accommodate the contrasting values of others. A multicultural, pluralistic society, one of our nation's strengths, demands no less. The Uguins, or Uguinins, I'm not sure how to pronounce their name, the, the owners of this photography business, are free to think, to say, to believe as they wish. They may pray to the God of their choice and follow those commandments in their personal lives wherever they lead. The Constitution protects them in that respect and much more. But there is a price, one that we all have to pay somewhere in our civic life. And uh, it concludes, uh, the sense of respect we owe others, whether or not we believe as they do, illuminates this country, setting it apart from the discord that afflicts much of the rest of the world. In short, I would say to the Huguenins, with the utmost respect, it is the price of citizenship. And Art, I see a box of tissues on your on your desk, and I think I need one. Thank you. This is what legal the law is supposed to be about. What you just right. read, right? Okay. Right. Do you I need mean, Do you need one? No. No, you're okay. I'm okay. I'll, okay. I'll wait until we take the break. <laughs> but, but but the point is, I mean, that's beautiful. Actually, we should we should now say briefly what's happened in New Mexico since the Fascist mm-hmm. case. I mean, what happened after the Windsor case was that a uh, a county clerk in uh, Donna Anya County said, well, I think that New Mexico should grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And New Mexico is very unusual in that they, due to political deadlock and different parties controlling different houses of the legislature, they've never been able to put an anti-gay marriage constitutional amendment on the ballot in New Mexico. They've never been able, the people who want that have never been able to achieve it. And the people who want to achieve marriage equality have never been able to get that on the ballot or to get legislation on that. The marriage statute has gender-neutral language in its operative provisions, although the forms provided by the state refer to a bride and groom. Uh, so an argument has always existed that it's possible to interpret that marriage statute to allow same-sex marriage. It's certainly not expressly forbidden. And the Constitution has nothing to say about it directly, but there is equal protection in the New Mexico Constitution. So this one clerk says, I'm going to give marriage licenses. And then it spreads to other counties. And as of now, when we're making this, uh, this podcast, eight counties are giving marriage licenses, some as a result of court orders by local trial judges. And at an early point over the summer, as this was unfolding, there was a request to the New Mexico Supreme Court to just take up the issue directly because the attorney general agrees with the clerks and says he's not going to interfere, he's not going to sue them to stop. He agrees that under New Mexico statutes and constitution, same-sex couples have a right to marry. 
So uh, at first, the New Mexico Supreme Court refused to take it up. They said it should go through the regular trial process. There are cases pending in several counties now in the district courts, and uh, we'll let it bubble up in the normal procedure. But now that it's spread to eight counties and there are several hundred licenses that have been issued, uh, several Republican legislators got together and filed a lawsuit to try to stop it. And the Association of County Clerks in New Mexico got together to intervene in one of the cases and petition the Supreme Court to take it up. So the Supreme Court has agreed, and on October 23rd, they're going to hear oral argument. So the uh, same-sex marriage litigation path has been accelerated in New Mexico. Wow. And the Attorney General is on the side of same-sex marriage, so it's a bunch of Republican uh, state legislators who are going to be on the other side, and they will undoubtedly be represented by the usual suspects in these cases. Ted Olson may have some time on it. Uh, not Ted Olson, excuse me, the opposite. The opposite. The yeah. opposite. The guy from Blag. The Alliance Defending <laughs> Freedom, yeah. <laughs> What's the, uh, I'm forgetting him already, because he's going to be a footnote eventually. Yeah, he's a footnote Who's the Blag uh, former Solicitor General? Former Solicitor General. Uh, I'm You're blanking on his name, I'm too. We've too. spoken about him a hundred times on this yeah, podcast. He was your favorite lawyer for a long time. <laughs> all right, well, our it's listeners really all know, because we're, we're completely blanking. Right. So we so have forgotten him already. I was going to say gone. he does have some time on his hand because we have now officially withdrawn. Right, Black you know, is withdrawn from, from all all pending cases. All pending cases. Uh, uh, so, so the one last sort of very interesting note: uh, the Pentagon announced effective September third that the uh, Defense Department is going to recognize same-sex marriages that were lawful where they were contracted, regardless where the uh, personnel are, are living or signed. Uh, and so, uh, in New Mexico. There's a soldier who went and got one of these licenses and married her sweetheart in New Mexico. And then she applied for the benefits. And at her base, they were a little hesitant. They said, well, look, like New Mexico, it's sort of like unsettled at the moment. And at first, they wouldn't let her sign up, her, uh, her spouse. But then they changed their mind. And they said, okay, you got a, a license. It was issued by a clerk. We will sign you up and we'll give you the ID card, the spousal ID card. You can use the PX. You know, you can apply for the medical health benefits for spouses and stuff like that. So, Paul Clement. Paul Clement. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, it is obvious to everyone, including all smart, Smartphone makes it. Yeah, makes that I was not listening to a word because I was Googling. Right. How could we forget Paul Clement? I'm sorry. Continue, Art, and then we'll close right. this segment. So, so just to say that New Mexico may end up being uh, the next jurisdiction uh, to have marriage equality. And their route will be different than uh, their route other will ones. Be the Supreme Court. But there's also a possibility that it will be Hawaii because the governor of Hawaii has called a special session of the legislature to consider a marriage equality bill that he had introduced in August. Uh, and and uh, the governor, Neil Abercrombie, said that he won't call a special session unless legislative leaders tell him they think they have the votes to pass it. So he's now said he'll call a special session, which means they think they have the most to pass it. So it could be that Hawaii will be the first. But it could also be that Illinois might be the first, because a marriage equality bill passed the Illinois Senate last spring, and it may be brought up in the House during what they call the veto session of the legislature coming up in October, November, when they normally uh, meet briefly to uh, decide whether to vote on overriding any vetoes that the governor has issued over the summer. Uh, so a new bill could be, or the bill that has passed the Senate could be raised in the House during that period. And, of course, there's always New Jersey, where there might be an attempt by the lame duck legislature after the uh, fall elections to override Governor Christie's veto. 
that's a possibility. Interesting. Well. You've now just done the the almost complete marriage update that we weren't planning on doing. Yeah. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there. Okay. Now that we've Googled Paul Clement and you've done your piece, we can take a short break. We return. We'll be discussing a couple of cases uh, once again and and early on, demonstrating the potential far-reaching impact. No surprise, I don't think to many of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Windsor. Stay with us. So we are back discussing two post-Windsor cases uh, where Windsor has been front and center. Uh, the first is out of Ohio in Obergefell v. Kasich, where a federal, court, uh, dis- federal district court judge, Timothy Black, has found that post-Windsor, uh, Ohio laws prohibiting or seeming to prohibit the recognition of out-of-state lawful same-sex marriages violated equal protection. Did I sum that up right, Art? Well, I mean, isn't that implicit in the decision? Yeah. Well, what he said was that they should get a TRO in this case because they're likely to win. Okay. And this is just a ruling on a pretrial motion for TRO. Correct. And let's go into the facts of this first case um, so people can understand what's... These are pretty heart-wrenching facts. So you have a long-time couple where one of them is really... 20 years. Yeah, facing terminal illness. They, They fly from Ohio to Maryland for the sole purpose, really, of getting married on a tarmac. Well, the plane doesn't. Yeah, they don't even they, leave they, the plane. They chartered a special medically equipped jet because uh, John Arthur, who's the the one who's ill, uh, has Lou Gehrig's disease and is in the final stages. And you know they needed to have support equipment there. He couldn't even get off the plane in Maryland. They had an officiant come onto the plane and do the ceremony for them there, and then flew back to Cincinnati, hoping to have this lawful uh, wedding uh, take that took place in Maryland recognized in Ohio. For various reasons, not the least of which that his, unfortunately, his death certificate that will be forthcoming when he succumbs to this disease will, 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 show, him will show him as married as opposed to single. Uh, it affects survivor benefits. Uh, um, Most significantly, it affects burial. It, mm-hmm. it seems that the Arthur family has a family plot and its use is restricted to members of the family. And to be a member of the family, you have to be a biological descendant or you have to be a legal spouse. And so for these uh, men to be buried together eventually, when, when Mr. Obergefell, in the course of time, dies, they had hoped to be buried together. And they wouldn't be able to be buried together where Mr. Arthur is going to be buried. He would have to be exhumed and moved to another cemetery. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, facts can really play a big no, role. No, that's, that's worth you know, repeating. And it, just seeing this, this is where the, again, there the cruelty of, of those who would deny a loving couple the opportunity to have their relationship right. recognized in all its forms. We see here in the worst, right. in the worst set of well, circumstances, and, and the impact case, of it. And, and what, what is really interesting to me, and, and it shows how important Windsor could be, uh, Windsor has basically established that in the eyes of the majority of the Supreme Court, there's no rational basis, really, for refusing to recognize lawfully contracted same-sex weddings if you're recognizing lawfully contracted different-sex weddings. Uh, And uh, what isn't mentioned anywhere in the court's opinion is Section 2 of DOMA. Now, Windsor was all about Section 3 of DOMA, which was the federal definition of uh, marriage. Section 2 of DOMA says that no state is obligated to extend full faith and credit to a same-sex marriage contracted in another state. There's a same-sex marriage contracted in another state. And this case was litigated not on the theory that under the Constitution's full faith and credit clause, Ohio must recognize this marriage. 
it was litigated on the on the theory that under Windsor, it violates equal protection to fail to recognize this man. And the idea was, as you were getting at, is that Ohio, in effect, would be creating two different classes right. uh, in terms of their treatment of out-of-state couples and the right. recognition they afford. There would be same-sex couples married out-of-state who would come back and not get recognition, and there would be opposite-sex couples married out-of-state who would come back and would get recognition. Right. And, and furthermore, there would be opposite-sex couples who were married out-of-state who couldn't have been married in-state. Because some states allow right. first cousins to they marry. They have the direct analogy of it. they, they go get a marriage that would not be allowed to occur in they, Ohio. They, they said Ohio has a well-established practice of recognizing different sex marriages that couldn't have been performed in Ohio that are performed in other states. That's and, a good point. And so uh, the judge picks right up on the Windsor opinion. Justice Kennedy said the problem is Congress has created two tiers of marriages. The, the marriages we will recognize in the federal government, the marriages we won't even though under state law they're equal because in the state where they were married, both mm-hmm. are equally allowed. So he said, well, here, Ohio. Ohio has created two tiers of marriages performed out of state, those we will recognize and those we won't. The only difference between them is those we won't recognize are same-sex marriages, and the Supreme Court in Windsor has said there's no rational justification for treating same-sex marriages differently if a state has allowed that couple to marry. And so Windsor, as far as this judge is concerned, is not a federalism case. It's an equal protection case. Much to the chagrin of Justice John Roberts. Yeah, Chief Justice Roberts, in his uh, dissenting opinion, tried to make it just a federalism federalism case case, so it wouldn't have any uh, application He seems to be losing that battle so far. Even Scalia disagrees with him. Yeah. Uh, So uh, in this case, the, the judge says, well, I don't see any justification. For Ohio refusing to recognize that. Certainly, I think, on ruling on a motion for a TRO, that they have shown a likelihood of success on the merits. They haven't shown that issuing the TRO is going to injure anybody else. It's not going to injure the state in any way. It's, it's very similar to yeah. the same uh, exposition we've seen in, in, in the DOMA cases to begin right. with, where we they go through, there's no justifications for right. any of this. I mean, this applies to so many different scenarios, right. including this one. This is this is all about treating people differently because you disapprove of them in some way. And Congress can't do it. States can't do it. Okay, uh, great. The standard is the same under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment as under the Equal Protection Component of the Due Process Clause. I'm giving you that look of, uh, I just want to transition to one last thing. To getting to the other case. To getting to the other case. It's really, uh, it's, it's similar in many ways, but yeah. it's it's different. But it, it, this yeah. is a Pennsylvania case. It's the case of um, uh, uh, Cozen O'Connor, which is a law firm which we'll get to, uh, versus Tobitz, I believe, right. uh, which involves the rights of her surviving spouse. Again, not great circumstances uh, in terms of the uh, where the parties find themselves in the context of this dispute, involves the rights of a surviving spouse in a civil union uh, in, in Illinois uh, and her rights to inherit the spousal benefits under an employee pension plan that run by Cozen O'Connor that is subject to well, ERISA. Did I get that it's, wrong? It's, it's a little more complicated than that because well, I'm they, trying didn't, to simplify they, didn't civil, they didn't have a civil union. They got married in Canada. See? Right, right. But this in is, a fa- okay, no, this is fair. A, Walk it. Okay, so let's start. This is, this is intricate. Yeah, we right. But let's sub, step by step. So couple so, who lives together in Illinois. All right. Sarah Ellen Farley and Jean, and Jean Tobitz. Okay. And uh, actually, the, the court refers to her as Jean Tobitz, but in the uh, title of the case is Jennifer Tobitz. So I guess Jean is her nickname. But uh, Farley and Tobitz uh, live together in Chicago. Farley works for Cozen O'Connor, a Pennsylvania-based law firm that has a Chicago office. She's never been employed in Pennsylvania. She's always been employed in Illinois, in Chicago. And 
the firm has an employee benefit plan, a profit sharing plan, that gives people an annuity when they retire. But if they die before they qualify for retirement, their surviving spouse is entitled to the annuity. And uh, under the plan, which is, as an employee benefit plan, is regulated federally under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, uh, ERISA provides that in such cases, a surviving spouse is entitled to inherit a benefit of this sort unless the spouse has waived the right in favor of another beneficiary designated by the employee. And Ms. Farley had never designated anyone else. All right, so they went to Canada shortly after they got married in Canada and you know, came back to, uh, to Chicago. Ms. Farley was diagnosed with cancer, and she died soon thereafter. At the time, under this employee benefit plan, her surviving spouse would be entitled to an annuity value of something like $49,000. Uh, however, the day before Sarah Ellen Farley died, her parents claimed to have gotten her to sign a designation form designating them. And I don't know what's, I think I do know what's worse. The idea that they completely forged that or that they literally, the Maybe day she before she was dying, they had her signing a document that purported to X out her, 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 her loved one right. from her inheritance. And so, and so, and uh, we're told in the court opinion that the, the Farleys had never approved of this relationship. It's, it sounds like it. Yeah. Although, so, you know, that's not always the, the sole factor. And they, there are some claims that maybe this was forged. At any rate, uh, the statute says, ERISA says, that a surviving spouse has a veto over such an assignment to anyone else. And in the absence of a surviving spouse under ERISA, surviving parents would get the benefit. They would mm -hmm. be next in line. So the Farleys claim they're entitled to the benefit. They file a claim with Cousin O'Connor with the administrator of their benefits plan for this benefit. They say, our daughter died without a surviving spouse. We are the parents. We're entitled. To, well, I, by the way, we have this assignment, uh, written assignment. And, uh, of course, Tobit's files. She says, I'm a surviving spouse. We got married in Canada. Now, certainly Pennsylvania law wouldn't recognize this because Pennsylvania has a state DOMA, constitutional amendment, and statute banning same-sex marriage recognition. Uh, but these women didn't live in Pennsylvania, they lived in Illinois. And ERISA federalizes the question. The question of who's a surviving spouse is a question of federal law. But Windsor, striking down Section 3 of DOMA, has removed the federal definition of marriage. So there is no federal definition of marriage under ERISA. So we have to go to the pre-DOMA practice, because ERISA predates DOMA. And the traditional practice has been to look to state law to decide whether someone is married. The law of which state? Is it the law of the state where the employer is headquartered and has adopted the employee benefits plan, or is it the law of the state where the employees reside and work? And the court here says it's where they reside and work, and also expresses work. the public policy fear that uh, a contrary rule would allow an employer who perhaps out of objections or just because they want to save a few bucks yeah. decides that they're going to base it yeah, in, they might in do a forum shopping. Yeah, yeah, forum shopping to save some money on right. the benefit. So they say Illinois law will govern. Now, Illinois does not have marriage equality. As, as we already mentioned, there may be a vote in the legislature uh, later this, in this session coming up. But they do have a Civil Union Act that has been in effect since 2011. Ah, say the Farleys, our daughter died in 2010 at a time when Illinois did not recognize same-sex marriages. And, and it's worth noting that the Civil Union law purports to say that you're going to treat 
for all purposes. Anyone in a civil well, union the same way as a spouse. Well, this is part of the court's analysis because they also argue that uh, only marriages count. And this Canadian marriage would not be recognized as a marriage in Illinois. It would be recognized as the equivalent of a civil union. And the judge, who, uh, Judge Jones in this case, I mean, I think there's some fancy footwork going on here, but Judge Jones says, but if you look carefully at the Illinois statute, the Civil Union Act says that civil union partners have the rights under state law as spouses. And the issue here is not whether they're married. The issue is whether Tobit is a spouse. Yeah, I like that. And Illinois, Illinois law says treat her as a spouse, so I'm going to treat her as a spouse. Uh, what, what happened was uh, Cousin O'Connor filed this lawsuit. Yeah, they, they just said, wanted the court to decide. They, they, they said <laughs> this is an interpleader called, action, right. which you know. Yeah, yeah an interpleader action where uh, the plaintiff is facing uh, contradictory claims and needs to have them resolved, and they arise under federal law. It's an employee benefit plan governed by ERISA. Uh, so uh, Judge Jones says that Tobitz is a surviving spouse for purposes of this employee benefit law. And she never waived her rights. She never approved any assignment to the parents. Therefore, she's entitled. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an immediate indication by the attorneys for uh, the Farleys that they would appeal to the Third Circuit. But after this issue of Warnots went to press, I believe, I, I saw an announcement that the Farleys had changed their minds and they dropped the appeal. Really? Which means it's not going to go to the Third Circuit, which means it's just going to be a district court decision. District court decision have no binding precedence over anybody except the parties. Uh, so this issue will not have been decided uh, at an appellate level. But it's going to come up again. Absolutely. All right. Let's. Um, that's interesting bit of news there, and well done, Art, on the, that complicated case. As always, we can take another very short break, and we're going to conclude, conclude with our of note segment. Stay with us. We're back to close the podcast with our of note segment. Take it away, Art. Yeah, I thought it was noteworthy that uh, we had a bit of a cliffhanger when we uh, left last last issue. Uh, marriage equality had been passed through uh, the House of Lords. It had been passed through the House of Commons in England, but there was a question of reconciling because the House of Lords had adopted lots of amendments. Surprise, surprise, the House of Lords sends their amendments to the House of Commons, and the House of Commons says, we approve, the next day. So they send it to the Queen. Now there's great suspense. Will Queen Elizabeth <laughs> II sign this? Yes, the next day. So we now have a new law in England called the Marriage Parents Same-Sex Couples Act of 2013. Uh, this is sort of weird. You know, same-sex marriage passed in France this spring, and people got married the next week. It doesn't work that way in England. Uh, the Secretary of State has to implement, and the Secretary of State has no firm timetable. And the estimates are that sometime next year... You're you making know, a very... You're, is that an imitation of yeah. what's supposed to be the British Secretary? Sometime next year, <laughs> we will get around to doing the new forms, and same-sex couples will be able to marry in the UK. All right, that was a striking impression. Well, I feel like I'm in Britain right now. England and Wales, that's all, because the legislature has given local autonomy to Scotland. So, yes, so we anxiously wait. Yes, the Scottish legislature will have a bill uh, for marriage equality. I'm not going to ask you to do your... 
interpretation of the Scottish, Scottish legislation. I'm not going to try. I don't think any of our listeners want to hear you try. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of New- Greater New York or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. And please give us a moment to give us lots of stars in iTunes. All right, thanks. Enjoy.